coming to the close of our series here that we've been going through during uh, December. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the month, we started with uh, you know, looking at not really spending a lot of time talking about creation, but really talking about how, you know, what sin is and how sin was introduced into the world. And, and that from the very beginning, this didn't take God by surprise. That God wasn't shocked like, oh my gosh, those human beings are sinning. It's like, no, from even before the foundations of the world, even before the foundations of the world, the gospel plan was already set, was already in motion. We hear about it when we read scripture and we see the promise of the coming Messiah King. And then we talked about how in Jesus Christ that that Messiah King had indeed come. And last week we talked about the benefits, the the consequences, the positive consequences of what Christ accomplished and what happens when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And it's one of my favorite things about Christmas. One of the favorite things about Christmas is a lot of people who aren't Christians or people who kind of think they're Christians, but you know, it doesn't really show up in their lives because they only show up in church once or twice a year. And they're not really faithfully living. They, they come and it's an opportunity for us to present the gospel in its fullness. What Christmas should be a reminder of, what it should be a reminder of is that humanity needs a savior. Christmas should also be a reminder that the savior has come. Unfortunately, and I can only speak to American culture because it's the culture I'm a part of, unfortunately, Christmas has become a reminder of something quite different than humanity needs a savior and the savior has come. Christmas has become a reminder that humanity's not so bad. We just need to try harder. We're not so bad because every Christmas we prove we're not so bad. Because for at least a couple weeks, maybe even an entire month, we can be nice to each other. We can give gifts to each other. We can think about those people who have done all these things for us all these years, that, that postman that you complain about, you know, garbage guy who you get upset because he leaves a mess. Oh, you know what? Once a year, we're going to show humanity's not so bad. And that leads us to this conclusion that if humanity is not so bad and we just need to try harder, we don't really need a savior. We just need inspiration. We need somebody to inspire us. And every Christmas, we get inspired. We get inspired to be a better person. And then we follow it up with New Year's, New Year's resolutions, and now we're going to be a better person. And every year, we prove that when we try to do things ourselves, it only lasts to about the middle of January. You know, I love to go work out and, and I love to go to the gym and stuff and I used to hate January. January, the gym is packed with all these New Year's resolutions people. You know, they got their membership, they're out there. But by February, it's back to normal. I usually skip the gym in January. It's too crowded. 
We don't need a savior, we just need inspiration. And in fact, there are a lot of inspirational saviors out there. Jesus is very well one of them. He may even be the best of them, but all he really is is an inspiration. Even Christians fall into this trap. We, we reduce Jesus. We, we think of Christianity as that all that really Jesus came to do was save us from being punished. We admit we had sinned. We admit the penalty was death. Whew, Jesus saved us. Awesome. Or we reduce Jesus to being like, you know, the kind of person who's the, the spreader of happiness. And if I follow Jesus, it's the secret to happiness. He's going to make my life happy. As we look at Scripture today, my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer, is that as we look at this passage today, that, will God, that God will show us how great a Savior how great a salvation that has been won for us and that we would understand more of what it means to serve and follow so great a Savior. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Paul is writing to this church and one of the things he's trying to help this church understand is exactly that, how great a Savior Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, I think one of the reasons that, that we don't really want to embrace all that Jesus is, when we read this, we want to somehow kind of create metaphors or kind of reduce this down to where, to where Jesus is still you know, someone that, that we can see as like he's this, this great human being, this awesome teacher, this inspirational leader. We want to keep Jesus that way because if we believe that our situation was so desperate and so dire that God himself had to come to save us, if that were the case, that would be admitting something about ourselves we don't really want to admit 
for various reasons, we live in a world today where many, most if not the majority of people believe the world, do not believe the world needs supernatural help from God. The world doesn't think, even if the world accepts God, and even if the world accepts that God can act supernaturally, we don't really need the help. We can do this. We got this. Again, it's what we've turned Christmas into. Just try harder. Just be nicer. It doesn't matter that human history is full of attempts by human beings to just try harder and just be nicer. And it always ends miserably. We keep thinking we're the exceptions. We're going to get it right. Of course, today we now are like, you know, we're science people. You know, we, we accept science. And I accept science. I am not an anti-science person. But I don't believe that accepting science means I need to reject the supernatural. And yet some people now, they have this convenient thing that, you know, whether we need supernatural help from God or not doesn't matter because there is no supernatural. It just doesn't exist. Let's just move on to some other solution. But people who are willing to accept God and even willing to believe that God can act supernaturally still don't think we need supernatural help from God because, again, they miss the depth and the tragedy of our sin. One of the reasons we keep talking about that, one of the reasons the church can never get to the point of being sin-free in how we, in how we talk about the gospel is because we have to be reminded of the depth and tragedy of sin, not so that we walk around feeling guilty, but so that we might have greater joy knowing what our Savior has saved us from, that we might have a greater sense of urgency to want to help other people, our friends and our family, no longer live in the depth and tragedy of sin. But now that we've kind of accepted sin ain't so bad, it's okay, it's just another way of living, it's just another way of thinking, we don't have that urgency. We certainly don't need supernatural help. But the other part, whether it's Christians or non-Christians, the reason that they reject this idea of the supernatural help from God is because they either don't accept or they don't understand that what we need is not just being saved. We don't just need to be saved. We need to be made new. We need to be transformed. If we're just saved, cleaned up, and sent on our way, we're just going to get in trouble again. We're just going to get dirty again. All that that does is maybe buys us a little bit of time. But as we've talked about many times here, at the heart of the gospel is this idea that you cannot save yourself. 
You cannot save yourself. And when you are saved, you are made new. You are transformed. You are no longer driven by the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh. You have God's perspective, God's spirit, God's love. You're new. It's a big deal because if I don't believe I need to be made new, if I just believe I need another chance, then I don't need supernatural help. I just need another chance. But if I realize something fundamentally has to change about me, that I cannot change myself, that no other human being can change, that no life situation, no education, no training can change in me, that something fundamental has to change about me, it has to come from God. And so if I'm not going to accept that there's supernatural, I cannot accept that I need to be transformed or if I do think I need to be transformed, then I'm ultimately in despair because I cannot be. Many people don't believe we need as great a savior as we read about in Colossians. Sometimes what happens is and this happens among Christians, is we separate salvation from Savior. See, the first Christians, they had, they had the, the Hebrew writings, the Old Testament, and they had the teachings of Jesus. And, and they certainly had, you know, many of them had like first-person experience with Jesus. They understood that he, he died. They saw him resurrected. But none of that was enough. It was awesome, it was great, more than what we get to see, but it wasn't enough. They didn't yet have Paul's letters, John's letters, Peter's letters explaining things. They didn't even have like all of Jesus' things written down in one place. But what they had, and we read about this in the book of Acts in chapter 2, what they had was they had this radical life-changing experience. They had faith in Jesus Christ, but they were radically changed. They were made new. They, they, they knew that, that what Jesus had said was beginning to connect because what they were realizing is, is, that, is that Jesus wasn't just here to start a movement. He wasn't here to like start a school for people to follow. What they were experiencing was totally new. They went from being people that were afraid, not knowing what was going to happen, to people who are boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They went from people that were just typical. They were just kind of living for themselves, you know, trying to make a living, you know, take care of their families. They went from that, and in an instant, as we read at the end of, of chapter 2 of Acts, their lives had radically changed. They were getting together as often as they could every night. And this is with people that weren't their families 
They were people that just the day before were strangers and now they're gathered, worshiping, celebrating, hungering after God's word. Something radically had changed about them. And they began to take what they knew from the Old Testament. They began to take what Jesus had taught and what Jesus had done and now they added to that this radical experience of experiencing this incredible love that they had never experienced before. And they began to think about what kind of savior would produce this kind of salvation? You see, we kind of take it from the other side. We often learn about who Jesus is before we experience salvation. And that's why we often will separate the two. We don't really think like, if I've been made new in Christ, what kind of Savior would be required for that? We just kind of believe two separate things that are incredibly linked. That's what Paul is trying to help us understand in Colossians. You see, he's writing to this church in Colossae. And this church was, in a lot of ways, not unusual. You know, it was a church that he had been a part of that helped start and things like that. And, and you know, they, they were, by all accounts, kind of, kind of growing and stabilizing. But they were also a church set in these Greco-Roman, um, you know, kind of situations where you have, you know, the pagan worship, it's cosmopolitan, there's all these different beliefs that are coming together that because of the Roman Empire that hadn't really had a lot of time to interact before. And so Paul is writing to this church and what he's warning them against is this word we've talked about before which is called syncretism. He's, he's warning them that be careful, be careful that you are not modifying Christianity, modifying who Jesus is to kind of fit your lifestyle. Be careful of that. Don't take your previous practices, philosophies, religion, whatever it is, and, and then try to hold on to them, but to hold on to them, you have to change Christianity. And, and he's not talking about changing things that aren't essential to Christianity. Just make sure you understand that. He's talking about like, like the key, essential, fundamental beliefs. And so to do that, the first thing Paul wants to establish, which he does here in chapter one, he wants to establish for them, reminding some of them, teaching others, more fully who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. He, he wants them to understand you cannot just accept Jesus and place him alongside all your other gods. You can't just accept Jesus and Christianity and place, it alo- place Christianity alongside all your other ethics all your other rituals, all your other philosophies. No. 
You know, he starts out in this passage by talking about, first of all, Jesus' relationship to all of creation. Then he, then he talks about Jesus' relationship to the church. Then he talks about Jesus' relationship to each believer. But his main argument is this. The Son of God, the Creator of all things, the Redeemer, the Savior... He came to transform us, not so we could change him to fit into our lives. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He is over all. You don't take the supreme creator, savior who's over all and think like, how can I fit that savior into my life? You can't. He's too big. He's too much. It is not about how you fit him into your life. It is how he transforms your life. Syncretizing. Christians have done it throughout history. It's scary because we don't realize we're doing it. Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about this. We still do it today. Paul's word to us would be the same word he would give to these Christians at, at Colossae. Jesus doesn't need to change. The gospel doesn't need to change. We do. And so when we look at how Paul's broken this up into three sections, the first section is verses 15 through 17, where he starts off with this, he is the image of the invisible God. And what he's establishing in this section is Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Your Savior is not your personal Savior who just came down to save you. If you have that concept of Jesus, it is wrong. It is wrong to think that Jesus came, you know, was, you know, came with the Son of God, you know, became man. That this incredible, you know, like virgin birth occurred. He lived this perfect life. He suffered, bled, died, resurrected. That he did all this just for you. Now that's very heartwarming it might even be something that makes you think like wow Jesus loves me that much and it might even call you to Jesus but it's not the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ God's plan his project for creation was not to collect wayward souls it was to establish his kingdom. We get this wrong because we get caught up in this, this feeling of like, oh, I'm so loved. You know, I remember like growing up in the 70s, like the kind of the epitome of this is these evangelists would come to our town and they would say something to the effect of, you know, if Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looked through the corridors of time and he saw you were the only one who would come to faith in Jesus Christ, he still would have died for you. And I'm like, yeah, that 
pulls on the heartstrings, gets the emotions going, but it's not the gospel. Understand, as Paul is going to end this section, Jesus does love you. Jesus did die on the cross for you, but not only you. Jesus, the Lord of all creation. Paul begins by saying he's the image of the invisible God. This kind of, it's kind of a thing that we, you know, that in the Jewish mindset of God and in the in kind of Greco-Roman mindset of God, there was often this sense that God was utterly transcendent. He was, transcendent just means he's above and beyond. It's actually what the word holy essentially means. That he was above and beyond this world. And he was above and beyond so much that God could not directly be known. And it's not because God is deficient. It's because we're deficient. And when Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, he is saying Jesus in his very person, just by showing up, reveals this God and reveals him fully. In that same verse, he says, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's not talking about human birth. And again, we unpack this on Wednesday night. But he's talking about how Jesus is both the owner and has authority over all creation. He is preeminent, as Paul will say later. It's not about birth order. It's about his position. And remember... He's, all is created through him. And as we reminded ourselves when we look back at Genesis, it was all created as good. All of creation is under his authority and power. He is not simply concerned about my life. But I want us to remind ourselves of this because as soon as we start talking about power and love, as soon as we start talking about you know, conquering and all of that, we immediately make it about the way the world operates. And we just think like, yeah, Jesus is, is all powerful. So that just means he's stronger than us. What we forget is that what Jesus shows us on the cross the way that he exercises power and authority is not by crushing you, but it's by loving you. He exercises his power as love. He is trying to introduce into the created order, the fallen created order, the importance of love and he's trying to make that possible. Remember, we cannot love like God loves on our own. It's part of what it means to be transformed. We need to be made new. We cannot. We cannot simply try harder. 
Jesus on the cross, in the resurrection, in the giving of the Spirit. He is, he is giving us, yes, this incredible example of love. But he's also making love in us possible. He is the savior of the world because he makes love possible in the world. And when the world, transformed through faith in Jesus Christ, given the righteousness of Christ, when the world is infused with the spirit of God, which is experienced in love, the world is saved. And then, it's not just that Jesus creates all things. As Paul says in verse 17, in him all things hold together. He's not just, okay, resurrected, sent the Spirit, going to be on vacation for a while. No. All things are sustained by him. All things continue to exist because of him. And he is sovereign over it all. You see, our Messiah King was not simply a great ruler or the greatest human being. He's not simply the greatest of all created beings. He's, he is the Lord of all creation. He is not created in any sense. And again, the world shouldn't be trying to modify him to figure out how to modernize Jesus so he fits in our world. We need him to change this world. That the world would become more like him so that the world might be saved. The second section, pick it up in verses 18, goes through 20. And here, Paul shifts the attention, and now he's talking about believers, and he's talking about the church. And here we see that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord of the church. He starts off by saying, the head of the church. Usually, when the New Testament uses the word church, it's talking about churches like this. It's talking about a local gathering. And in their day, a lot of times, there would have just been one per city, But here, Paul has a different emphasis. He's not saying the church just simply as your church at Colossae. He's really talking about all believers. And that Jesus leads the church. He's the head of the church. And he's the head of the church in both word and spirit. It's why we hold to God's word. Because Jesus is the head of the church. But understand that it's not just we have a Bible and all of us can take it and just say, okay, I'm going to live by the Bible. It's the Bible rightly interpreted. It's not the Bible interpreted in a way that suits me or suits you. But it's the Bible rightly interpreted. And then we have the Spirit and the primary, the com most common way we experience the Spirit is when we receive love from God, which many of you 
especially those of you who are older when you came to faith in Christ, the first experience might have been just the fact that you no longer felt guilt. You no longer felt condemned. You knew you were forgiven. But it's not just the experience of being loved. It's suddenly finding out you're doing weird stuff you never did before. You're loving people you could not love before. You're seeing opportunities and doing things that you could not see and you could not do before. It is the receiving and expressing of love. It is the fruit of the Spirit. You know that you, you are changing. You're no longer obsessed with yourself and you're no longer you know, stressed out about what everybody thinks of you. Instead, you are living for others. You're loving, you're caring, and you're not doing it because someday they'll pay you back. You're not doing it because sometime you're, you're, you're investing in the bank of karma and someday you're going to withdraw. No. You're doing it. It's because that's who you are in Christ. You've been so overwhelmed with His love that Paul says is not eyedropper, you know, into our life. But he says in Romans 5, the love is poured out, poured out to our lives. He also talks about in verse 18 this, this phrase, they actually go together, the word beginning and firstborn of the dead. Those are like the same thing. They're not two separate things. And here he's saying what we see in Jesus, when we look at the resurrection, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, when that supernatural thing happened, what we see is that Jesus was beginning this new covenant age. That he was, he was beginning this age that, be, that is the hope for the world, the salvation for the world, this radical departure from the way the world operates. That the world is, is this power-based, survival-based, self-centered-based way of doing things. And we only set aside these things if they somehow, in some other way, serve them. We may give sacrificially if somehow it serves myself. All that's gone. In the new age, God's law is written on our hearts. We are a new creation. We have the Holy Spirit. We can love and we can relate to one another, not based on power, not based on winning or losing, but based on love. And again, we cannot do this on our own. The resurrection of the Lord is this announcement, this huge announcement, this demonstration that this new stage, this new covenant age has begun. And we see in verse 19 why Jesus is, is this one that he becomes like the perfect mediator between God and humanity. 
Paul says it, you know, for the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Probably better translated, God was pleased for his fullness to dwell in Jesus. Again, this points to the revelation of of God in the person of Jesus. But the fact that Paul makes the point that God was pleased to do this shows that that this isn't a rivalry between God the Father and God the Son. This isn't done begrudgingly. This is a continued expression of God's perfect love. And we've talked about reconciliation, but understand, Jesus is not a third party reconciling two sides. Jesus is fully in both sides. He becomes the reconciler, the reconciled, and he is the reconciliation. When we are in Christ and when he is in us, we are in that place of reconciliation. It's why as Christians we never think, okay, I can become a Christian and now I can, I can go my way. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. And we see at the end of this section, he accomplishes peace, reconciliation, peace between God and humanity through the cross. See, this, he, it's not just he is the sacrifice for sin. He is the sacrifice for sin, but it's, it's even more than that. He's also demonstrating the love that salvation will lead us to. That this the sacrifice, the pain, the penalty of sin, the conquering of sin and death, that's happening on the cross, but he's also demonstrating the love that salvation will lead us to. It's why, that peop- it's why people who really understand Christianity and really understand what it means to surrender your life to Christ and to really be loving in this selfless, sacrificial way, what they understand is that when Jesus did that, He was falsely accused, he was mocked, and he was hung on the cross. A lot of people want to think, and there's certain churches that will preach this kind of gospel, that if you come to Jesus, he will solve all your problems. Life is going to be good. All your family problems will disappear. Your marriages will be richer. And yet we find Jesus, the Son of God, perfectly living out the faith, perfectly expressing God's love, and the world hates him. But what we also see in Jesus is is this law and love is brought together in such a way. It's brought together in such a way that we can see We can see the way, we can follow the way because we see in Jesus law and love perfectly expressed. 
This is our Messiah King, the Lord of all creation, the head of the church who reigns in love. In the last section, verses 21 and 22, he then talks specifically, and he's talking to the Gentile Christians, but you can tell he's talking more specifically to kind of that, that concept of, of individual faith. And he's like, Jesus reconciles all believers with God and with each other. And he tells the Gentile Christians especially, he says, you know, you were alienated. You were separated. Don't you remember this? Don't you remember this? You were separated from God and you were separated from each other. There was this divide between Gentiles and Jews. In fact, you weren't just separated and you're like, oh, poor me, I'm separated. He says, you were actually hostile to God. You were enemies of God. You're enemies to the things of God. I mentioned this in our Sunday school downstairs that sometimes, sometimes you can clearly present the gospel. You can clearly present what new life in Christ means. The person can clearly understand it and they'll still reject it. And why will they reject it? Because they're hostile to the things of God. When they hear people talking about loving and caring and forgiving, they're hostile to the things of God. When, when they hear things about God having a law, that even though this law is the law of God's love, they are hostile to the things of God. It's not that you presented it poorly. It's that their hearts are hostile to the things of God. And you probably have people in your life, you know they understand the gospel, but they would rather live for themselves. They would rather live by their own terms, control their own life, even if it's leading them down sometimes very dark and miserable paths, then they would truly follow Christ. And he ends that verse 21 by saying they're doing evil deeds. We see the word evil and we immediately think of like heinous evil. That's not what Paul has in mind. He really talks about evil being anything against God's will. God's will is good. Anything less than good is evil. And he, again, he tells us in verse 22, this reconciliation, we have been reconciled. We've been reconciled to him, but in being reconciled to him, we're reconciled to one another. People who used to hate each other maybe based on ethnicity, maybe based on socioeconomic status, maybe based on culture, whatever reasons, whatever man-made reasons they had for hating each other, they're now brought together. What should our response be? Well, verse 23, Paul kind of points towards it. He points towards it in two ways. One is he tells us, and then he gives us his own example. 
And in general, what he's saying is our response to so great a Savior, if we accept who Jesus is, if we accept what Jesus is doing, that he is, he is the, the one who came to offer salvation to the world, that he is the Lord of all creation, if we have such a great Savior, our response as believers should be to faithfully follow him in a manner worthy of him. I cannot remind us enough that we cannot do this on our own. We need Jesus. We need him to make us new. We need to be sustained by the sustainer of the universe. But we should also understand that the Bible is full of saying what we should do. We should be disciples. We should want to be better prepared to better serve so great a Savior. Paul's focus here is not on how we get to this point. He just says, get to this point. He says, get to this point. You know, be continuing the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting. But how you get to that point is that after you become a believer in Christ, once you've been made new, is that you are a disciple and you understand your discipleship is not the acquisition of knowledge merely. It is the transformation of our lives. It is the preparation to serve, to live out the kingdom. It's a consistent and focused faith, not distracted or swayed by circumstances and by the world. And then he uses his own example where he says, do what I do. You know, I've been, I am one who proclaims this gospel. Be part of that. Near the end of the letter, Paul is going to conclude, and really his conclusion could just attach right here where he's ultimately going to say one of the primary ways we do this is to love. He says this in, in, in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm not going to unpack this scripture. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm going to challenge you to take this scripture, post it somewhere, Put it where somewhere you are going to look several times during the day. Make a big one and put it right on your windshield. 
You can't miss it. No, don't do that. That would cause an accident. But have this scripture. Pray this scripture. Ask this question to God. Is this what people see when they see my life? Does this describe me? But I want you to do more than that. I want you to also ask this question. Does this describe our church? Is this not just pockets in our church, not just the few good friends in the church that I have, does this describe our church? Make it a prayer. Make it a prayer that this will be more and more evident in your life and more and more evident in our church. In servant, in service of the Messiah King, the God who is love, who saved us by the greatest act of love and who empowers and equips us to love, we must follow him from love, by love, and in love. Love is not some ambiguous power flowing through the universe for you to define or me to define. It is clearly defined, clearly exemplified in Scripture. God is love. That's what John tells us. Love is a fundamental, essential part of who God is. If we are to serve our Savior and King, we must do so in His perfect love, which we cannot do without him. If love is a fundamental, essential part of who God is, his love must be a fundamental, essential part of us. I have one action point. It's simply this. Become a student and practitioner of God's love. Jesus conquers sin and death through the ultimate expression of love, his death on the cross at the hands of the ones he came to save. My question for you, non-Christian, and even my question for you, Christian, has your heart been conquered by his love, or do you still fight against it?